0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast History Does You. Today we're going to be talking about Operation Varsity and we had an interesting interview with James Fandellan who wrote the book Four Hours of Fury which is the inside story of Operation Varsity and today actually marks the 75th anniversary of Operation Varsity so I definitely wanted to line up the anniversary for that. This is also our first midweek episode so obviously with the coronavirus going on I've had a little bit more time on my hands. Uh, before online classes start. And depending on the rate of interviews that I'm able to get to, we might switch to doing two episodes a week as opposed to once a week. Uh, depending on how that goes, I still definitely want to put uh, a lot of effort into these episodes and make sure that they're properly researched. So uh, depending on how things shake out, we'll see what happens uh, next week. but this is our first you know two week or two episode week, so I'm super excited about that. And as always, feel free to follow us at Facebook. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, at Instagram, at History Does You, or follow our subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so you can keep updated on new episodes and on social media. Now, Operation Varsity was the largest single-day airborne operation in World War II, and I thought it was super interesting because I think it's one of the most overlooked battles in World War II specifically because it was the end of the battle and it was predominantly a British-led operation. So although the Americans did play uh, an important role, it definitely is one of those things that is often overlooked because it comes from a different perspective and was um, led. Now, before we get into that, I definitely want the background of what was going on during World War II. Uh, So this was in March of 1945. Uh, The Western Allies, Great Britain, France, Great Britain, Britain, United States and Canada had landed in Normandy in France in June 6, 1944. And after a seven week battle, eventually the Allies broke out of Normandy and essentially raced their way to the border of Germany uh, in August. There was a large scale airborne operation called Operation Market Garden in September of 1944, uh, which was designed to try and get over the Rhine River um, very quickly in order to get Um, Allied armor formations onto the plains of Germany and bring a quick end to the war before Christmas. Unfortunately, that failed, and eventually supply lines became bogged down, resulting in uh, the Allies essentially coming along the border of Germany but having to stop and regroup after conducting such a large-scale offensive. Now, Hitler uh, gambled on trying to come to a peace agreement uh, at the Battle of the Bulge, which was the last offensive in the Western Front um, from the German side and resulted in a month-long battle in the Ardennes Forest, which is right or wrong, uh, Belgium and Luxembourg. Unfortunately, that failed for Hitler, and the Allies very quickly you know, destroyed the pocket that the Germans had been able to create. Now, after regrouping, it was in March of 1945 that the Allies were looking to cross the Rhine River. And the Rhine River is one of the largest rivers in Europe. It had been used as sort of a barrier for the Roman Empire. It had been used by France as a barrier for centuries. So it was one of the last natural barriers that Germany could defend on the Western Front. So it was super important that they defend this line. And they're practically putting in all of their resources into this. But by this time, the German army had, was really a shell of itself. It had, you know, just in five, six years of fighting, it had had pretty much been whittled away. And although there were certain divisions that had a large quality, a large quantity of men and quality of men, it certainly wasn't the machine that had, you know, conquered France and the Low Countries in less than a month. It wasn't the army that had invaded Russia or the you know, Africa. So it really was this hodgepodge of you know armies that certainly didn't want to be fighting. Um but Hitler insisted um that Germany would fight on to the end because no one was going to say no to Hitler. Um Germany's fate was pretty much sealed from the moment that you know he decided to start World War II, to be quite frank. And it was really at this time that the Allies were trying to look for a way to cross the river successfully and effectively. And it's interesting because this is the first airborne operation to really sort of secure a bridgehead. Um, the Allies had been encountering issues of trying to cross rivers um, in Italy, um, in Western Europe, in the battles of Normandy uh, and Market Garden. And controlling, you know, bridges over these rivers was the most important and vital way to do this. So the idea was, was to drop two airborne divisions on a super concentrated drop zone in order to secure a bridgehead around, uh, across the rhine river so that the british forces who were crossing the river wouldn't be vulnerable to german artillery which is interesting because the rhine river the land kind of surrounding the area is mostly high ground so there's a lot of defendable areas directly across the river but once the allies were able to cross the river the germans would be very vulnerable to the super fast moving uh, tank divisions and just the uh, absolute mobility of the allied forces And this again was scheduled for March of 1945. So the idea was if they could get across the river quickly, they could pretty much mobilize all their forces. And once they were across the river in multiple places, it pretty much the last defensible barrier on really the Western side was, uh, the river Elbe, which sort of runs in the center of Germany. So once the allies were across the Rhine river, it essentially would be game over for, uh, the Germans. And we kind of see that, uh, fairly quickly. Um, So we'll get into the interview with uh, James Van Allen, which was one of my favorite because he definitely doesn't come from a traditional academic background, but he was also, he was an army paratrooper. um, and went to the university of Texas um, and he's also written about this extensively. So I definitely encourage you to check out his book, which is four hours of fury. Um, I definitely hope you enjoy uh, the interview. Um, yeah, it sounds fine. I mean, I, Usually just can you with. Hear me? Yeah, no, actually, that's a little bit better. For
1: work. Oh wait a second. Let me try again. Hang on one second. Hang on, I didn't have the headphones on. Yeah. Hello. No? No? Yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Is that better or worse from your side?
0: Uh that sounds a little bit better. Okay, great. Okay, good. Yeah. So. Everything is recording. Uh, Yeah, we should be good to go. Excellent. Awesome. All right. So on today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome on James Van who was an Army paratrooper and is an alumni of the University of Texas at Austin. He's also written for the World War II magazine, is the author of the book Four Hours of Fury, which talks about the untold story of Operation Varsity, the American 17th Airborne Division combat jump over the Rhine River in March 1945. And he also consults as a technical advisor for video game screenplays and documentaries. So, uh, welcome on to the podcast. Thank you so much, Riley. I'm glad to be here. Um, so, just to start off with some broader questions, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Uh, why is your favorite, and why have you focused so much on airborne operations during World War II?
1: Yeah, I think you know, World War II is kind of my 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 favorite period of history. I just think that the the conflict itself is so uh, the scale of it was so massive that there's no shortage of, of topics of interest. And of course, my own service as a paratrooper has kind of what focused my initial efforts into documenting history. I think that uh, you know, the, the airborne, use of airborne troops and gliders and paratroopers was was brand new at the start of the war; hadn't been done before. And it's just kind of that p- pioneering spirit that has always kind of captured my imagination.
0: Uh, and then, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered while researching this period? yeah, I think
1: it's it's an interesting one because I think there's so much to uh, all the aspects of how a, a battle is waged, how war is is fought, that getting getting all of the specific details and making sure that you're right on some small aspect uh, that that it may not necessarily be germane to the germane, rather to the the part you're telling. but, you know, is going to be important to somebody is just kind of making sure that you're always staying ahead of those details and being able to dig in and find out um, what the specific, you know, events that unfolded were. And of course, also the other bigger thing is just always trying to stay on top of the, the source material. So, you know, looking back at not only period um, documents and understanding what was happening or what the perspective was, but also, you know, updates or newly discovered material, because again, not everything back in, back in the day, so to speak, is always necessarily accurate or had a full grasp of what was what was going on.
0: Awesome. So obviously, we have some background now. Uh, now, I kind of wanted to get into the background of the airborne, which is interesting because although airplanes have been used during World War, War, World War I, airborne operations were something new to World War II, and I kind of wanted to ask you, um, even though... Airborne operations were a relatively new concept in warfare. Um, what were the roots of the airborne and who kind of developed the concept of dropping soldiers from airplanes behind enemy lines?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an interesting topic. There was actually, you know, you brought up planes in World War I, and there was actually a uh, proposal to drop uh, elements of the 1st Infantry Division behind line, the lines in World War 1. And that was something that was just kind of getting into the planning stages uh, right when the war ended. Probably fortunately for everybody who would have been involved in the plan, because um, obviously the the technology of the day was quite rudimentary.
0: Uh huh. But, but, Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you can finish. Sorry about that. I was just
1: going to say, kind of, but between the wars, um, you know, Italy did a lot of experimentation with airborne troops, but probably. the Soviets were really uh, pushing the envelope, and I think we've probably all seen that that footage of the guys sliding down uh, the airplane wings as they were kind of jumping, which was kind of the inspiration for the German adoption of airborne troops. But the Soviets don't really get a lot of credit for um, the integration and use of airborne troops in the interwar years, and they actually conducted numerous Uh, field exercises to validate their approach and to continue to work on um, the techniques and tactics to deploy those troops. And then the Germans are the ones really who took it to the forefront in in 1940 as part of their use of those troops in in the invasion of of Holland and Belgium.
0: Now, on the American side of things, was this a concept that was sort of developed um, in the interwar years or obviously uh, the United States wasn't involved until 1941. Did they see German success in airborne operations in the early years of the war and say we need to develop our own airborne? Uh, was the backstory with the airborne and the United States?
1: Yeah, the United States kind of kind of dallied with it, if you will. There was um, some initial efforts in the late uh, or the early 40s, I should say. Um, There was some debate going back and forth as to whether or not those troops should be in the army or in the air force or the air corps at the time. Um, It ended up being uh, part of the infantry, the 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 army, because once they they figured once they landed on the ground they'd be fighting as infantry. The Marine Corps also um, started developing their own parachute units, and it really started to kind of take off with the test platoon, which was an initial group of guys at Fort Benning who were responsible for kind of putting together the initial tactics and techniques and some of the equipment, and that blossomed into the 501st Parachute Infantry Battalion, which was really the Army's first organized group of of Army parachutists, and they were commanded by uh, Major Bud Miley, who later became the commander of the 17th Airborne Division.
0: Awesome. So, um, to follow up, what were some of the qualifications to get into the airborne? Uh, were they simply to be able to parachute or were there rigorous, um, physical tests that need to be done? Um, yeah. What were the qualifications for that?
1: Yeah. Physical fitness was, was absolutely, uh, a significant criteria for making it through jump school. I mean, I think the, the first component of it was that you had to volunteer. So, Service in a, in a parachute unit was not compulsory. It was a volunteer. They obviously, um, you, you could see the limitations of forcing someone to jump out of a plane. So, um, all the guys who volunteered for, for parachuting, um, came from, you know, their own initiative into the, that element. And then jump school at the time was, it was a very physical demanding activity. It took, uh, I think it started out at four weeks and a lot of that was all the physical training necessary to go through obstacle courses and then all of the various um, aspects of, of, of gymnastics and tumbling and landing and being able to steer a parachute and, and things of that nature. And those physical requirements were carried out once, once a trooper got to his parachute unit as well.
0: Awesome. So in your research, um, did you find that there was a certain – type of American that ended up in the airborne? Um, did they come from different backgrounds? Um, what was kind of the makeup of the airborne in terms of where they came from and who they were?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because of that that volunteer aspect of it, you know you you've seen, I'm sure in your own your own study, a lot of units, say maybe National Guard units that were activated, all did come from a particular swath of society or a specific region of, of the country. Whereas because of that volunteer nature for parachute units, um, they really did come from all walks of life and from all parts of the country. Um, you know, A number of guys were attracted to serving with parachute units because of the additional pay that they got um, per month for being on jump status. Other guys wanted to fight with the best troopers and figured that, you know, the, the airborne troops at the time were were some of the most elite soldiers in the Army. And so they wanted to serve with those guys. And, of course, others were attracted to it for uh, the possibility of, of of the adventure and getting into combat first.
0: Awesome. So obviously now our listeners have a better understanding of the American experience in the airborne. Um, and then I wanted to shift to Operation Varsity, which is – what your book is about. Um, and to start off, what was kind of happening on the Western Front up to this point? What was the situation uh, facing the Allies in March of 1945?
1: Yeah, broadly speaking, at this point in the spring of 45, the, the Germans had been pushed back from the gains that they had recognized during the Ardennes offensive, right, they had, they had launched their surprise attack, the Battle of the Bulge in in December. Uh, by spring, the lines had been kind of uh, reestablished. established the, the Allies had resumed their push towards the Rhine. Uh, broadly speaking, the British and the Canadians were on the left or northern flank of that advance. The Americans were on the southern flank. And uh, the, the divisions, the Allied divisions, were all kind of approaching the Rhine River. The Americans really wanted to grab a bridge on the fly, so to speak, meaning— um, to rush in and hopefully grab a bridge before the Germans had a chance to demolish it. Um, up in the northern sector, uh, where Bernard Montgomery, Field Marshal Montgomery, his forces were advancing. They got to the Rhine and kind of came to a pause as they then organized themselves uh, to begin the what would become the largest Assault River crossing
0: in, in history. And was the Rhine River the last defensible barrier on the Western Front facing the Allies?
1: Uh, it certainly was the the largest natural defensive barrier across uh, the German frontier there. It's a little over 400 yards wide in some places and has uh, a very fast running current and certainly presented uh, a great natural obstacle that the Allies would have to overcome.
0: Now, um just to shift a little bit um, to airborne operations during the war, what were some of the challenges um, that these operations had faced in Sicily, Normandy, and Holland?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question because I think varsity kind of represents the the culmination of all the lessons learned from those operations. I think if you start with with your your example of Sicily, which was uh, some could call it a fiasco. Um, You know, you had to really overcome the challenges of nighttime navigation. Uh, Gliders in in Sicily were almost universally released too far off of shore. A great many of them landed in the ocean. Um, I think I heard recently that some of the, in terms of the 140 some odd that the British released, one of them actually made it to the landing zone. And so I think that that kind of pandemonium was, again, repeated in Normandy, some would argue, to the favor of the airborne drops. But uh, nighttime drops really became a uh, unconquered challenge for that for airborne operations in World War II. Just the, the technology and the training necessary to, to navigate at night just wasn't
0: there for the troop carrier. Awesome. And were these kind of mistakes integrated um, for Operation Varsity, uh, were there certain Um, aspects of the plan that reflected kind of some of those mistakes that had happened in the past?
1: Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, including the lessons learned from Operation Market Garden in Holland, you know, that where we had the the issue with the first, uh, the British first airborne division dropped at Arnhem. So I think when you look at varsity, you start to see things like, you know, a daylight drop in order to make sure that you had the accuracy of the navigation you had, dropping them closer to the advancing front so that uh, the link-up could take place sooner. And then you also had uh, for Varsity, which they also had done for Market Garden, but this idea of uh, rigging B24s uh, to drop supplies right on the tail end of the Air Armada.
0: Awesome. Um, And then to follow up, um, when did this plan kind of begin to come together and who was the general that led that effort?
1: Yeah, so Varsity kind of came together under the um, under the 20, 21 Army Group, Montgomery's uh, Army Group that was uh, along the Rhine. He wanted to use airborne troops uh, to drop on the far side of the Rhine to serve as a bridgehead and to seize a number of bridges on the far side along the Issel River. So you had the Rhine River, which is the primary barrier, and then on the other side of the Rhine you had um, – A canal and a river that kind of forked with a number of bridges across it. And one of the primary goals for both the British 6th and the American 17th Airborne Divisions was to seize uh, those bridges. And that plan came together under the command of General Ridgway, who at the time was the commander of the 18th Airborne Corps.
0: Awesome. So obviously, the plan called for the 6th British Airborne. Uh, the 17th, and the 13th. um, Was there a specific reason why the 101st Airborne or the 82nd Airborne um, wasn't used, uh, obviously because they had seen combat in Sicily, Normandy, and Holland? Yeah,
1: so I think, uh, you know, at the time, the 1st Allied Airborne Army was responsible for developing the plans for Airborne operations. There was a number of them uh, that were in the planning phases, and so the, the challenge of that command at the time was to determine how to best allocate uh, the divisions and the resources they had for the missions at hand. Um, and I think when it came down to Varsity, it was it was uh, being planned simultaneously with another. another a number of other operations to support the Rhine crossing, and the 13th Airborne, 17th Airborne, and 6th Airborne were the ones assigned to the the Varsity mission.
0: Awesome. So obviously, later the 13th Airborne Division was scrapped from the plan. Um, why was that?
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting. So traditionally, the narrative has been that the 13th was scrapped from Varsity due to a lack of uh, air, air airlift power. Air, you know, the number of aircraft. Um, but the the reality is is that General Ridgway, as part of 18th Airborne Corps and the overall commander of the drop, was never satisfied with how Montgomery wanted to use that third um, that third airborne unit. And so it really came down to what was the best use and from a doctrine perspective of how to use the 13th. And the original plan was to drop them in uh, a bit later, within 24, 48 hours of the other two divisions, to seize terrain further inland. And Ridgway's concern at the time would be that the Germans would be being pushed back from that initial Rhine crossing and that the, the drop zones would be occupied by the Germans and he felt that that secondary mission of Varsity would be better obtained or better better taken by ground infantry and so they got they got put on standby and and for Varsity and then for for later operations as, as well.
0: So. To follow up, the Allies had been able to put enough planes and resources together to make sure that all the airborne units could be dropped on a single day as opposed to Market Garden, uh, which wasn't the case.
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah, the, the Allies were able to pull together for Varsity the largest armada that they had for the war, uh, made up of just under 1,600 transport aircraft, a little over 1,300 gliders. Uh, That armada was protected by over 500 uh, fighter aircraft. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, kind of coming in on the tail of that were 240 B-24 bombers that uh, were rigged to to drop supplies. So all told, to your point, they were able to bring in and drop uh, the vast majority of of two two airborne divisions uh, in one single lift.
0: So um – just before we get into the actual battle, um, what was the difference between kind of glider troops, pathfinders and paratroopers, or were they all pretty much the same?
1: Uh, well, they were all in the same division, but I think at the time, uh, you, you definitely would get a difference of opinion between, uh, the two groups. I mean, again, going back to that, I think the biggest difference was the, that volunteer aspect that I talked about earlier. So paratroopers were all volunteers. They all volunteered to serve in a parachute unit. They all volunteered to go to jump school. They all made it through jump school. Uh, glider units were made up. You didn't, you didn't get a choice if you were assigned to a glider unit. So a lot of the guys uh, in the glider infantry units were had not volunteered for airborne duty per se. Um, they did do a number of things to try to, to boost their morale Uh, halfway through the war they started giving them hazardous flight pay similar to jump pay you know glider flight pay they gave them some of their own unique insignia Uh, the glider wings started to allow them to wear jump boots as well to kind of give them a little bit of the same esprit de corps
0: that the parachute units had awesome so um, now the german army um, was facing the allies at this point along the rhine river um, specifically in the region where the Allies were going to drop, uh, were these experienced units or were these mostly second-rate units?
1: Uh, it was a mismatch. You know, I think there was definitely, you know, if you start with the commander who was who was across the Rhine at the time, uh, a, a general by the name of Alfred Schlem, he was a very experienced German commander. A number of his uh, division commanders were also very experienced, Schlem in particular, uh, had served in World War I, had fought throughout the war in Italy, Russia, uh, Western Europe. Had had been a, a vital part of the planning for the German airborne operation in Crete. So he was very familiar with uh, airborne operations and knew that airborne troops were at their most vulnerable when they landed. And then of course you had, you know, Germany had a, a you know, significant manpower shortage. So you also had, you know, varying. Level of, of quality in the rank and file in the German army at that time, certainly.
0: Now, do you think the way that the airborne divisions were dropped, uh, specifically in tighter drop zones, was more effective rather than the more spread out ones like in Normandy or in uh, Market Garden?
1: Yeah, I think part of that for Varsity, it uh, definitely was related to the objectives that they had to seize. And again, that goes back to those those 10 bridges along the, the Issel Canal and the Issel River. And this is. I think it was three in the British area and 10 in the 17th Airborne sector, and the, the tightness of the drop certainly was reflective of the objectives that needed to be seized and to, and the size of that bridgehead across from uh, the Rhine where the 21 Army Group was was coming across. Uh, it Certainly, in the case of Varsity, presented a lot of uh, complete pandemonium during the drop as the, the jump was so tight together. You had Essentially, one of history's largest bar fights um, kind of unfolding as these guys were landing, um, you know, stories of guys getting in shootouts through the roofs of of farms. They would land on the farm roof and the Germans inside were shooting up and these guys were shooting down. And um, so there was a lot of initial chaos in the moments of landing due to that that tight drop and just jumping literally on top of the German positions.
0: Now did the British and Americans have the same objectives or were they kind of separate from each other?
1: Uh, well, it, they definitely had separate objectives, but they were all directly related as to kind of forming this outer shield, if you will, to protect the bridgehead. So the um, as you' as you're facing the Rhine and kind of coming across from an allied perspective, the the Americans or the 17th dropped on kind of the, the north, east, flank if you will the british were on the northwest kind of flank and they they tied themselves uh, their perimeters together um just outside the little village of Hammlencln along that third bridge along the Issel canal there's is where the british troops and the uh troopers from the 513th parachute infantry regiment tied their their two divisions perimeters together to kind of form that barrier against german counterattacks trying to come in across those bridges
0: um Could you just briefly kind of describe the operation and uh, kind of what happened on the ground on March 24th? Was it successful from the start or as you kind of described it, was there an initial um, chaotic phase of the initial drops and then things turned in the Allies' favor?
1: Uh, Yeah, the initial drop was, you know, very – a lot of chaos on the, on the initial moments of the drop as the, the first planes in for the 17th Airborne were carrying in the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Uh, the guy in the, in the first plane standing in the door to jump first was their commander, Edson Raff. Uh, the first planes in his serial of aircraft misdropped uh, the, his entire 1st Battalion about a mile off of the drop zone. Uh, The other two battalions came in on the correct drop zone. They landed there along with their supporting parachute field artillery unit. Um, Same thing happened to the 513th, the other combat team of the 17th that was being airdropped. They came in, all of their infantry was misdropped actually into the British zone uh, while the field artillery landed on the correct drop zone. And then the gliders also had um, challenges coming in and just that they were releasing so many gliders over the landing zones that the glider pilots were really forced to kind of jockey for position to get their gliders down without any aerial collisions. And, of course, during all this time, you had tremendous amounts of anti-aircraft fire coming up from that side of the Rhine, adding to the the pandemonium. I think 20-some-odd planes from the 513th uh, were shot down, uh, numerous gliders, et cetera. So it was uh, was pretty chaotic. Um, I think to the credit of the troopers who went in, all of the objectives were seized within the first 24 hours. Um, all of the bridges that the glider troops had to secure across the ISIL were initially secured. There was a lot of bitter fighting throughout the night to hold those bridges. A number of them had to be destroyed um, before the Germans were able to, to kind of seize them, if you will, or overrun the, overrun the perimeter.
0: Uh, Now, it seemed like there were two kind of specific places where there was a lot of fighting, uh, specifically at Hemingkown and at Lembeck Castle. Um, Can you kind of describe uh, what happened at those two places and why they uh, were generally so well defended?
1: Yeah, Hemingkown was in the British sector, and it was kind of uh, a—it was was on the route for where the Germans' reserves were going to be coming into that bridgehead, and I think that was where— uh, there was the three specific bridges in the British sector that needed to be held. One of them had to be destroyed as German armor started coming across it. So Hammondklin was really kind of in that path of the German reserves coming in to try to counterattack into the um, into the bridgehead. Lembeck Castle, the battle there actually took place uh, one or two days later as the 17th Airborne Division started to kind of advance out of that bridgehead. And Lembeck Castle was defended by a number of self-propelled Artillery pieces, uh, well-staffed well infantry, and that was where the 17th Airborne Division, um, a guy by the name of Hedrick, actually uh, posthumously was awarded the Medal of Honor, uh, the fourth Medal of Honor for the 17th Airborne Division.
0: Uh, now, would you kind of consider the operation to be successful, whether it was the initial drop or kind of the days that followed?
1: Um, I do. I think it's an interesting question that's kind of been heavily debated over the years as to whether or not Montgomery needed to use airborne troops uh, as part of the operation. Um, You know, debate being that, well, you could have used ground infantry for that. But I think that really it all comes down to those bridges across the Issel Canal and that natural barrier of of that canal. So it's, you know, it averaged about 12 feet wide, probably 8 to 10, 12 feet deep. And obviously, you know once you lose the bridges across that it it's it it doubles as a nice you know tank trap tank barrier tanks would have had a hard time getting across that and so i think dropping airborne troops in to get those bridges uh, was certainly costly from a casualty perspective but the fact that they were able to seize those and hold those and if you if you look at follow on operations following that you'll see that um, the area of most advance, uh, you know, looking, thinking about March 28th in specific, was directly out of that, that bridgehead that the airborne troops seized. And that seizing those bridges facilitated the breakout from there, which, of course, the larger strategy for Montgomery was to, to swoop around and envelop the rural industrial area, um, which is exactly what happened as a follow-on operation from Varsity.
0: Now, just to ask um, <clears throat> some concluding questions, why do you think that Operation Varsity is generally overlooked by historians and writers?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know it's a, it's an interesting one. I've, it's a question I've asked myself numerous times, and I, I would have to say that you know from an American perspective, you know perhaps American historians have overlooked it because varsity was was part of plunder, which was largely a British. Airborne operation, or I should say, a British operation across the Rhine, was was led by Montgomery and with very few American units in it, 17th Airborne Division being one of them. I also think there's a lot of misconceptions around uh, Varsity and the state of the German army at that time, and perhaps it being viewed incorrectly as a cakewalk. And I think again, if you if you look at the numbers, I think the numbers were something. You know, if you look at April of 1945, the last full month of the war, the number of American casualties uh, almost matched exactly the same number of casualties from June of 1944. So certainly, while German capabilities, you know, they had their challenges with manpower, they had their challenges with fuel, but they certainly were still able to uh, fight the war and invoke a lot of casualties, unfortunately, as these guys continued to roll into Germany.
0: Now, would you kind of consider – or generally consider that the role of airborne troops was um, critical and successful to the Allied war effort? Um, I think they're
1: they're critical in so much that, that every aspect of the Allied war effort was critical, right? I think it kind of comes down to this idea of it takes an orchestra, and certainly, you know, you can make the argument – that the airborne troops and or, or rangers or special operations efforts in World War II were kind of on the margin. But it's on the margin where uh, all the efforts kind of come together to help, to help win the war as well. So critical might be uh, overstating it, but certainly they were instrumental,
0: uh, just as every other aspect of the war was uh, instrumental to winning it. And what do you think that the uh, legacy of Operation Varsity is? Well, hopefully, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's been largely overlooked. I think that was
1: something that I discovered, you know, with talking with the veterans of it, they, you know, they felt, uh, overlooked and overshadowed themselves by, by other airborne operations. And hopefully four hours of fury goes away, you know, a long way towards kind of addressing that and, and bringing it back into the public eye and, and giving those guys the recognition that, that they're due.
0: Um, Now, having served as an Army paratrooper, do you think airborne operations still kind of have a place in today's world, or do you think the advancement of anti-aircraft technology and jet fighters has made it pretty much impossible to successfully do?
1: Yeah, no, I think that, you know, those are certainly considerations. You know, anti-aircraft technology is way more sophisticated, obviously, than it was in World War II. Jets, you know— are certainly a significant threat. But the reality is, is that airborne operations have been conducted in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, in every conflict that we've, we've been engaged in, America continues to use airborne troops um, in that role.
0: Now, um, for you, what was kind of the most interesting or rewarding aspect of your research into Operation Varsity? Yeah, I think one of the most
1: unexpected aspects of the research that I enjoyed kind of uncovering and digging further into was the role of the OSS in in the operation. So there was a small group of, of agents uh, formed as part of Team Algonquin, and they their job was to kind of infiltrate during the, the pandemonium of the landing. Some of them were dressed as civilians with suitcases kind of posing to be uh, refugees escaping from the from the the onslaught, where others of them were dressed in German uniforms. Uh, One group of them in particular came in via glider with a previously captured German Kubelwagen. They were dressed as uh, Wehrmacht soldiers, and their idea was to kind of drive off the drop zone, get ahead of the advancing Allied army, and report back uh, tactical-level intelligence as to what was going on in the immediate German, German lines. And that was something that um, I found it really interesting and, and had a lot of conversations with some of those guys' families. Um, so it was great to kind of learn more about their their role in the, in the operation.
0: Now, uh, that was pretty much all the questions I had. Is there anything uh, you would like to say about the operation or anything uh, that I might have missed?
1: No, I think your questions were very thorough. I, I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you about it.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to uh, talk to me, and I think <clears throat> uh, this will again hopefully contribute um, to kind of addressing uh, this important operation during um, World War II and kind of the role of the American Seventeenth Airborne Division. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you, Raleigh. I appreciate it. Thanks. So we just had that interview with James Finellen, where he described Operation Varsity in detail. Um, obviously, his book goes into much greater detail about the soldiers and people that participate in the operation. So I, again, I would definitely encourage you to go check that out. Um, especially considering that a lot of you, I assume would not have a lot of other things to do being stuck in your house. Um, and just key takeaways, I think that really operation varsity was the culmination of a lot of failures on the airborne side of things. There were obviously, uh, Although there were limited successes at Sicily and in Normandy and in Operation Market Garden, you know, Operation Varsity was again the culmination of really all the mistakes that had been learned. And really, it was one of the most successful operations of World War II. You know, the Allies, in pretty much a couple of days of fighting, quickly secured a Bridgehead over the Rhine River and the British forces were streaming across in force within the following weeks and the world and World War Two or the Western Front pretty much was wrapped up by uh, early April of 1945 uh, with Hitler committing suicide and uh, the Soviet Union invading Berlin and for the most part allied forces reached the Elbe River rather quickly but you know without Operation Varsity a lot of this wouldn't have been able to happen um, in a timely manner. Um, because although you know the soviets were streaming in fairly quickly the rhine river was the last defensible barrier and the germans were going to defend it until the end so once the allies got across there um the Ruhr valley region which produced the vast majority of german weapons and stuff like that uh was quickly destroyed and the and more you know quickly came to an end following that um so again i would definitely encourage you there isn't a lot of great you know books and stuff i think uh, mr van is probably one of the best out there right now again because it's one of the most overlooked operations during the war which is always interesting just because it's for a lot of historians it's not the level of normandy or market garden or the battle of bulge or all these different things and i think that's just one of the interesting things about world war ii is there's just so much going on that you know a lot of important things that contributed to the end of the war um often get overlooked so i would encourage you um, and this time to definitely, you know, read more about it. And it's, again, uh, a lot of these people were, you know, young kids participating in this who, again, believed heavily in all this stuff. And, again, it World War II really propelled the United States into a superpower role and sort of has gotten us to the point where we are today. Um, and if it wasn't, again, in my opinion, for Operation Varsity, you know, things could have been a little bit diff- more different, Just in, although the outcome was probably decided. It definitely you know, contributed to the ending of the war on uh, the Western Front uh, and World War II. And as always, feel free to follow us on Facebook or Instagram at History Does You, or follow us or subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can keep coming on uh, um, more episodes. Um, I've actually had some great interviews coming up later this week. Um, And again, depending on just how things shake out, we may do two episodes a week or just continue with every single Sunday. Uh, But I'm super excited to release this episode. uh, I'm super excited to release this episode um, today. And I hope you guys enjoyed this and definitely uh, stay safe uh, in this time.